The Indian community first was brought by the British colonialists in 1860. Uh, they came as a, what was called indentured laborers, which was just thing as almost like slavery. But prior to that, when the Dutch colonized uh, the Cape in 1652, and they brought slaves, they also included some Indians from India. Uh, but the large numbers came in 1860, and subsequent to that also they came immigrants from India, but that was a small number. Today we have about a million and a half almost. 100% of them are born in South Africa now. They are all South Africans here. Uh, perhaps at the beginning we should talk about how racial discrimination applied. Now in South Africa, uh, there are four main, if you can call them race groups or national groups. And imagine a ladder. On top of the ladder are the whites with the vote and all rights and privileges that were denied to the rest. Immediately under them or under the whites were the Indians and in South Africa what we call Kurds. They would roughly be described as uh, people of mixed race, and at the bottom of the ladder were the blacks or the Africans, who are the majority, 85% of the population. Now racial discrimination applied differently to the different groups, but uh, some of the things applied to everybody who was not white. For instance, nobody who was not white could have the vote until 1994 with the first democratic elections, the first time we voted. And there were a lot of apartheid laws uh, which applied to all people who are not white, post offices, railway trains, uh, aeroplanes, parks, libraries, theaters, where they had signs, Europeans only, Europeans only, Europeans only. So that's how apartheid applied. But when one goes into detail, it applied differently to different people. Bit of my background, I was born uh, in a little country town a couple of hundred kilometers from Johannesburg. And as children, of course children don't know color, they don't know race. And as children we played whites, Indians, blacks, without being conscious of, of race. But when the time came for me to go to school, I could not be admitted into the white school, nor into the black school. There was no Indian school because the community is very small. So I had to be, at the age of eight, sent off to Johannesburg uh, for schooling. At that point, when did you first become politically aware and, and start to get involved in politics? Well, that's a process, you know. Uh, it's difficult to pinpoint but what happens is that uh, as children almost, uh, in our teens, when we came into contact with uh, elders who had already been involved in politics, and they'd give us things to do, uh, which children found very, very adventurous to go put up a poster or go and write something on the walls or distribute flyers or things like that. So one can't really seriously call that political involvement. It was just adventure. What? I became conscious of at an early age was racialism, precisely because of my school experience. But politics came later when I joined the youth organization, first the Young Communist League, which was non-racial, and uh, then gradually became politically conscious. Some of the architecture of apartheid was just being put into place at the time of your youth. Um, can you talk about the the Ghetto Act and how that impacted you and eventually led you to your first encounter with prison? Well, that was another uh, act of parliament which applied only to the Indians. Now, the Indian community, like other communities, uh, had severe restrictions on the occupation and ownership of land ever since 1885. And uh, in 1946, the government of South Africa passed a law which further restricted the occupation and ownership of land by Indians. The uh, Indian Congress 
I must point out that because apartheid applied differently to the different groups, uh, the groups reacted separately to the laws that affected them. So hence, we had the African Congress, the Indian Congress, the Karat Congress, and later on the Democratic White Congress. So the Indian Congress at the time uh, took a resolution to oppose that act. It was called the Ghetto Act. Various requests were made to the India government, but as far as South Africa is concerned, a plot of land <coughs> was identified in Durban, which was reserved for whites only, and volunteers were called upon to occupy that land. Uh, first, in uh, tents were set up, and volunteers were called upon to occupy that uh, those tents illegally. And in that campaign, about 2,000 volunteers went to prison. That was 1946. And you were one of them? I was one of them, yes. How was it? That was called, I think, the Passive Resistance Campaign? That It was called the Passive Resistance Campaign, yes. How was it that that campaign brought together the different communities that I think the African National Congress saw this and took some insight from this? Well, the, uh, the campaign of 1946 was primarily an Indian Congress campaign but uh, supported by the other uh, oppressed people as well and their congresses. In 1947, for instance, there was a pact uh, between the African Congress and the Indian Congress, uh, an alliance. The African National Congress and the Indian Congress uh, jointly organized in 1952 a defiance campaign where it was also a passive resistance campaign when six laws were identified and volunteers were called upon to defy those laws. Uh, again, uh, there were racial laws, racial discriminatory laws. And in that campaign, about just over 9,000 volunteers went to prison. That was the defiance campaign. How was it to, some of the anti-apartheid leaders didn't always think that it was a good idea to work together with the other communities. Nelson Mandela, in particular, has talked about at first, maybe he didn't think that it was a good idea to work with the Communist Party or with the Indian community. How was it that that came to change? What has happened is that while uh, there was this uh, alliance of the Congresses, there was the African National Congress Youth League, the youth organization. It was not racist, but it was exclusivist. They believed that uh, the struggle in South Africa should be led by the Africans only not in alliance with anybody else. And they were also anti-communist. But that was the Youth League. The mother body's uh, policy was different, of course. But uh, it didn't take them very long to change their, their, their policies, and, and they worked uh, as an alliance. So after a while, when your involvement in all of this deepened and you were doing a lot of different things in collaboration with the ANC, the ANC's military unit, Spear of the Nation, um, was starting to come into an existence. And you weren't, you weren't a member, but you were involved, or you knew about their efforts. What, what, what did you think about the role of armed struggle in the anti-apartheid movement? What had happened is that uh, in the face of all efforts by the Congress organizations, by the oppressed people, to get rid of the racial laws, the organizations first started with the policies of uh, representation, resolutions, petitions, deputations. That failed. In the face of those efforts, uh, the, uh, the government just uh, responded with uh, more severe legislation. Even after the passive resistance uh, movements, uh, there were very, very severe laws to suppress all sorts of political activity. In 1960, after uh, a Sharpeville massacre, now I should just briefly explain that there, was a, there were laws called the pass laws, which applied only to the African people, to the black people. And in 1960, a, a fellow, I mean a sister liberation organization, the Pan-Africanist Congress, organized a peaceful demonstration against these particular pass laws in a place called Sharpul, and the police shot at them, and 69 innocent 
demonstrators were killed. And that was followed by the banning of the African National Congress and the Pan-African Congress. So that peaceful political activity now became completely impossible. That is when the African National Congress set up an armed wing called Mkontoweseizwe, or the Spear of the Nation. The method they used was to recruit and train uh, volunteers or recruits into manufacturing bombs and planting bombs. Now the idea was to plant bombs at all symbols of apartheid. As I mentioned earlier, uh, all over South Africa there were these signs, Europeans only, Europeans only. And uh, these buildings were targeted to plant bombs. But volunteers had to take an oath when they became members, no injury to human beings. So that uh, these bombs were planted at night when there was nobody around. It is that that really led to our arrest, that activity, and our sentence uh, to life imprisonment. And you yourself were involved in planting some of those bombs? I was a member of the regional command of the, of the Mkontoweseizwe at the beginning year. Among the eight of us who were sentenced to life imprisonment, we had four of the most senior ANC members who were in fact the leaders of this uh, spirit of the nation. At the time that you were arrested at Ravonia, at this farm where you were hiding, there was a discussion about trying to shift your tactics in the armed movement from sabotage, from planting bombs, to actual guerrilla warfare. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. What had happened is uh, the policy at the time was the first phase of the struggle was the planting of bombs and so forth. And the second phase would be guerrilla warfare, classic guerrilla warfare, where would then be armed soldiers of the African National Congress or Mkontoweseizwe, trained uh, in the handling of arms, and of course meeting them, the enemy head on in armed combat. But we were already in prison when they reached that stage. But Prior to that, there were discussions about uh, switching to guerrilla warfare. This document called uh, Operation Maibuya. Now, the meeting on the 11th of July, 1963, was a meeting of these senior leaders of the armed wing and others like us who were involved uh, to discuss this very document, because it it was a very serious decision to take and uh, we had just started discussing that document when the police pounced and, and arrested us. And you were not in favor of it? No, I, uh, my attitude was that uh, it was a bit premature. We were not ready to switch to, that, uh, to the armed struggle. We didn't have sufficient trained members, we didn't have sufficient arms and I thought uh, I wasn't the only one. That's why there was a debate going on that uh, we are not ready for that and that would be decided by the leadership in exile. <laughs> so then you were arrested and that was one of the things that they used against you in court was this plan. Um, when you were sentenced, did you ever think that you would end up spending, going on to spend 26 years in prison? Well, you know, when we were uh, involved in the type of activities in which we were involved, by choice. So you are, you are prepared for the worst because the law already allowed for the maximum sentence which is death. The very least would be imprisonment. So those uh, at that time because the African National Congress was declared illegal, many of the senior leadership plus activists were sent out of the country. And of course hundreds of volunteers were sent out for training. Uh, military training. Those of us who continued work in South Africa, of course, were well aware that you cannot work underground uh, indefinitely. 
if you are active, sooner or later they'll catch up with you. So we were conscious of that. Of course, when the arrests come, uh, the shock is there. But uh, then, of course, you, you, you settle down to, to what was expected. From the time of our arrest, uh, throughout the period of our trial and so forth, they drummed in it our heads, you are going to die. Give us this bit of information and you won't die. That sort of a thing. So were you relieved when they gave you your sentence? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, right up to the, the day when the judge says, stand up for your sentence, the expectation of death, by our lawyers and by the accused. But that again was, uh, we were prepared for that. Because right from the start, having the four of the most senior leaders of the African National Congress among the accused, there was no other way to conduct the case but uh, to conduct it defiantly, not apologetically. So you have Mandela's uh, statement from uh, in court, which sort of summed up the way the case is conducted. Uh, we are not sorry about what we've done. And Mandela ended off his address by saying that this is what he stood for, and if need be, he's prepared to die. So the expectation of death was there right through. And of course, there was a collective sigh of relief when the judge said life sentence. Once you were given that sentence, they, they flew you away in the middle of the night to Robben Island, and they proceeded to try to do everything they could to seemingly try to break your spirits. Um, what, can you tell us about how, even in prison, they would try to enforce apartheid by meeting out the different sorts of humiliations according to race? Well, let's start at the, at the time of our sentence. There were eight of us accused and, and uh, found guilty and sentenced. Our eighth colleague was white, because our movement was a non-racial movement, uh, Dennis Goldberg. And because he was white in apartheid South Africa, literally from the cradle to the grave, there's separation. You're born separately, you grow up separately, you go to school separately, you play separately, you die separately, and you're buried separately, and you're kept in prison separately. So seven of us uh, were taken to Robben Island because the whites were not on Robben Island. Uh, so Dennis Goldberg was kept with other white political prisoners in Pretoria, and we were flown uh, to Robben Island. Now, just to again explain uh, racial discrimination uh, on Robben Island, Robben Island and treatment of prisoners was a microcosm of how apartheid applied in South Africa as a whole. I was the youngest of the seven, not the youngest on Robben Island. On Robben Island, we had 15 and 16-year-old prisoners as well. But I'm saying of the seven, I was the youngest and I was the only Indian. I'm saying so deliberately because when we landed on Robben Island, of course, we were shackled, even on the aeroplane, handcuffed, leg irons. And when they took off the leg irons and the handcuffs, we had to change into prison clothes. It was a very cold, windy morning, rainy. And all my colleagues who were older than the father of our president was 20 years my senior. Mandela is 11 years my senior. When we had to change into prison clothes, my colleagues were given short trousers throughout the winter, no socks. I was given long trousers and socks, and the rest of the clothing was the same. The rationale behind short trousers was all blacks, regardless of age, were regarded even by children, as boys or girls. And boys, of course, wear short trousers. That was the rationale. When it came to food, again, there was discrimination. In the morning, we had the same food, porridge, soup, coffee. My colleagues were given less sugar than we were. We were given less sugar than, than the whites, but the whites, of course, were not on Robben Island. My colleagues were not given bread. We were given bread. Their meat, their fish was less than ours. Ours, of course, was less than the whites. That is how apartheid applied in prison. So from day one, it was a continuation of the struggle against apartheid in prison. Uh, the struggle in prison takes very limited forms. 
you make your demands, your representations, etc. And the ultimate form, of course, is hunger strikes. It was a combination of the struggle of the prisoners, the struggle of our organizations outside of prison and in exile, the armed struggle, but as important was the solidarity that was shown by the international community, by civil society, not governments. Uh, only very few governments supported us. It was civil society. And I always point out when I'm in America that the students took the lead. Michigan State University was the first to respond to the appeal of the African National Con Congress to isolate apartheid South Africa. And they withdrew their pension funds from South Africa. Other universities followed, and of course, uh, trade unions, uh, churches, etc. So it was a combination of all these pressures that led to improvements uh, that within the three years, we equalized the clothing in prison. Uh, food took a bit longer, but we did equalize it. But the conditions as well, there was a lot of violence on Robben Island. We were never physically assaulted, our group. But uh, violence came to a stop after a few years. But that was all as a result of the pressures, combined pressures uh, of the world and of, of the South African people. How was it to find out about the outside world from Robben Island? How did you find out about the international community? We were not allowed newspapers. For 16 years, we didn't have newspapers. Uh, we were allowed in the first years one letter every six months, one letter incoming, one letter going out, one visit every six months. And those letters had to be confined to what they called family affairs. So being political, we had to keep ourselves informed. That was our lifeblood. And we had to find all sorts of means to keep ourselves informed. Big, borrow, steal, bribe, blackmail, anything to keep ourselves informed. And we did. We did, not on a daily basis naturally, but generally we had a good idea of what was happening. Until, as I said, after 16 years, uh, we did have newspapers. And after 24 years, we even had television. In your, in your memoirs, you describe a funny incident when you were attending um, church services and one of the, oh. the there's some extreme efforts to get a newspaper. Can you tell us that story? Now, I should preface that by saying that we were seriously going to church. Uh, Muslim, Hindu, I'm Muslim, but we used to, I used to go to all these services, Christian, Dutch Reform, Anglican, Methodist, a lot, out of respect to the clergy persons. They were wonderful people who came every weekend when the sea is even rough, they used to come. So we, we went out of respect. But we also had our ulterior motives. The church services took place outside in the courtyard in the sun. And we wanted the sun uh, because otherwise we spend the whole weekend from Friday till Monday in our cells, in our tiny little cells, except for one hour each day. So the longer the sermons, the better for us, we'd be in the sun. Our favorite priest was Brother September, who led very long prayers. And uh, on one day, a prisoner, uh, Henny Ferris, asked Brother whether he, Henny, would be allowed to lead a prayer. And Brother September was very happy. And Henny led a, quite a long prayer, which we enjoyed. And at a certain stage, Henny asked the congregation to close their eyes, which we all did, including Brother September. And Henny, when our eyes were closed, just signaled to Eddie Daniels, another prisoner. And Eddie opened Brother's suitcase, retrieved the Sunday Times, and that day we had today's news today. <laughs> <laughs> I did apologize publicly to the clergy persons after we were released that we were naughty <laughs> at times, but they understood. <laughs> I'm sure they would. You also, you, you found different creative ways of getting messages out and back in through letters. You used codes. I think sometimes you would refer to politics as sports or different. We had developed a code which we sent out of the country with one of the prisoners who was serving a shorter sentence. And that code went to England. Uh, but we were restricted to 500 words. So you couldn't even a coded message, you know, we could just get basic information. 
uh, about the organization in particular. So the very first letter that I got from abroad with a code, had, they had literally cut paragraphs out with the scissors. What they left in is the coded part. And the coded part was talking of Shakespeare and Milton and Wordsworth and Volkswagen motor cars and whatnot. To the censors in the prison, it meant literally what, what, what was written. To us, all these words meant different things. It meant people, it meant organizations, so that way. But uh, it was very limited because we were limited to 500 words. We couldn't have too much coded stuff coming in. It must have been a very different experience of writing letters to be having to count all your words and you, you ended up also transcribing that, copies of your letters. We were not allowed to keep copies. I was one of the few, if not the only one, who came out with uh, 900 carbon copies of my letters. Uh, they were taken away from, 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 they were confiscated, but we managed to, we don't use the word steal, we repossessed them. The first letters that I kept, the copies from 1964 to 71 were confiscated. I never got them back. But then I started keeping copies again and came out with 900 uh, carbon copies. You had a real, you've always had a real distinct sense of living history and, and the think of documenting this. When you were doing that at that time, who did you think would be reading those letters? No, the, there was no sense of history whatsoever. The reason why I kept copies is that when you write to the same people all the time, you want to know what you've written previously, ah. so that you don't keep on repeating. That was my only reason. The fact that they were published was not my doing. I had come out of prison and I gave all my letters to the archives. But the Michigan State University took the initiative and uh, twisted my arms to release the letters to them. And they published uh, the, the first uh, copies, Letters from Robin Island, in 1999. You also were credited with having encouraged Nelson Mandela to write his Long Walk to Freedom autobiography in prison. Can you explain how that process worked? Mandela was turning 60, and we thought that we should make a political statement. It was a, a risky enterprise because had we been caught, we had to take into account that not only we would be punished, but the whole prison community would be punished. The process was Mandela would write whatever he, would, he could, give it to Walter Sassoulo and myself for our comments, which we would write out, hand back the, whatever we commented to Mandela for his final version. And uh, his final version was then given to two of our chaps who were experts in tiny handwriting. They reduced 500 pages of Mandela's and another couple of hundred pages of another book of essays that we wrote in prison. They reduced all that to less than 50 pages in very tiny handwriting on rice paper. Rice paper mm. is very, very thin. One of our colleagues, who was very good at his hands, constructed from nothing uh, what we could roughly describe as an album. It was not a photograph album, just maps, huge maps. And in the covers of the album, he concealed the, the, the 50 pages. And the idea was, uh, as soon as uh, our friend, uh, he was being released after 12 years, and he was given the task of smuggling that to England. And the idea was as soon as he signals to me in an innocuous uh, postcard uh, that everything has reached England. We would then destroy the originals, which we had buried in plastic containers in our garden. The signal came, everything is safe. We thought we were safe until they started building a wall that was going through our garden. And we rescued whatever we could and destroyed it. The rest got caught. And because three of us writing was there, Mandela, Sassoulo and myself, we were punished. Our crime was that we had abused study privileges by using pen and paper by writing this illegal biography. And the punishment at that time was uh, deprivation of studies. And on that occasion, the three of us lost our studies for four years. 
studying became a really important part of your life and your way of sustaining an intellectual activity. And you also mentioned the garden. Can you tell us about how some of the ways that you would cope on a daily basis with the, the things that prison life would bring to you? You see, only those who are fortunate enough to have money from their families were given permission to study. Formally, you could register with the college for school and with the University of South Africa for distant education. The rest of the prisoners were not allowed to study or to have even books of any sort or pen and paper. I was among the fortunate ones that uh, my family did send me money and I was allowed to register. And, and so did some of our colleagues. The majority of prisoners on Robben Island did not have formal studies, but all of them left Robben Island with some education, informally, no certificates. Because among us, we also had people who were educated and they taught one another. And in that way, we even had illiterate, completely illiterate people leaving prison, being able to, to read and write. Uh, so studies are very, very important for us. And you yourself ended up completing, I think, two BAs and two honors degrees. And yes, I was fortunate. Uh, after a struggle, of course, I managed to get that. But uh, there was a sequence to that. Uh, I wanted to do a master's degree, which they didn't allow us. And then I decided that I should take the matter to court. So there was a lot of uh, documents passing between uh, my lawyers and the authorities. Eventually, the authorities caved in and they said, you can study for your masters. But coinciding with that permission came television. And I was no longer interested in studies. <laughs> we, we, we had never seen television in our lives because South Africa only got television for the first time in 1975 when we were already in prison. So uh, when television came, we thought, well, goodbye studies. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your favorite television show? The Cosby Show. <laughs> and of course, uh, what's her name? Whitney Houston mm. was our favorite. But there were many others. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about the garden on Robben Island? The garden, we were allowed, we prisoners in this section where we stayed, we were allowed to have our garden. The waters were not allowed to have gardens. There's a shortage of water on Robben Island. Water is brought from Cape Town. But yet they allowed us to have a garden. Maybe just to keep us occupied and not get into mischief, I don't know why. So we had, uh, we had a garden, being Indians and coming from peasant stock. They were the chief gardeners and Mr. Mandela. The first thing we planted was chilies. <laughs> we couldn't get chili seeds, so we got uh, the Indian priest to smuggle in uh, chilies, <laughs> chili seeds. <laughs> And then we planted tomatoes and all sorts of things. It was a lot of fun until the wall came in. That was the end of our garden. In 1989, you were finally released from prison after 26 years in prison. You said that your family wasn't even told you were coming out, and that whole first day of freedom was just kind of a big blur. What were some of the things that stuck with you, though, from that day? You see, uh, pol uh, life imprisonment for political prisoners meant life, literally. We were not supposed to be released. For common law prisoners or criminals, life meant 15 years. In October of 1989, by that time, what had happened, I should just go into a bit, bit of an explanation. Mr. Mandela, after, rather, after 18 years on Robben Island, five of us with Mr. Mandela, we were transferred to another prison in Cape Town for the rest of our sentence. And Mr. Mandela was further separated from us. And that is when he started a negotiation process. He managed to persuade the enemy that it is time that we start talking because there's going to be too much bloodshed. There already has been bloodshed, riots, uh, uprisings. He managed to persuade them. And that, to cut a long story short, led to our releases, to the return of our exiles, to the unbanning of our organizations and the negotiation process. 
So what had happened is that uh, when he was in this prison separated from us, we were allowed to visit him from time to time. On a Tuesday, the 10th of October, we were visiting him and he said, chaps, this is goodbye. And we said, well, we'll believe it when it happens. That very night, we were not taken back immediately to uh, our prison in Cape Town. And <clears throat> here we were sitting at dinner with colonels and generals, eating with them. And then they brought the television and the news had uh, an item from President declared to say the following eight people are going to be released. But he didn't say when. So we, we were quite cynical, you know, we'd heard this thing of release for so many years, we didn't believe it, we thought it'll happen. Now that he's announced it, it's going to happen. But we didn't expect it. That was on a Tuesday. On a Friday, we were flown to Johannesburg prison. On the Saturday night, uh, the colonel in charge of the prison came and told us that he had just received a fax from prison headquarters uh, to say that we were going to be released the next day. By which time, the media from throughout the world, as soon as de Klerk's uh, announcement was publicized, the media was day and night at our houses. The only people who didn't believe it is ourselves. Until it happened, Saturday night, they told us, early Sunday morning, half past five, uh, they took us to our homes, and that was when we were released. What was that like? Look, the first day of our release uh, uh, was a blank. There was a lot of excitement, and I just remembered a little bit. The media didn't give us a chance. They, for instance, they came to us and they put this long cylindrical, hairy thing and said, what is this? And they said, talk. So we talked. And that turned out to be something called a boom, television boom. We didn't know it. But that happened for weeks, you know, press conferences, interviews, uh, media from throughout the world wanted individual interviews and all that. So the first day was just like that. Uh, couldn't remember it, except for the children, because the worst deprivation one has in jail is the absence of children. I mean, I held a child in my arms for the first time after 20 years. That we remembered. But fortunately, somebody had videoed the first day. So when I saw that, a lot of it, the first day came back. But just to come back to the time of our release, people keep on asking Mandela in particular that after 27 years in jail, why are you not bitter, why are you not full of hatred? And his reply, and I must point out it was not Mandela's in invention. It was the policy of the organization because we were always fighting to establish a non-racial democratic South Africa. And we had not envisaged that when we took to the armed struggle that we'll overthrow them in armed combat. It was one of the many pressures. And we knew that victory, we will win one day. But when Mandela started the negotiation process, victory came earlier. But we did not win on the battlefield. We did not win the political battle. It was by negotiation. Because we knew that almost every struggle in the world ends at the negotiating table, except for China, Cuba, few places, otherwise everything. So we came out as a result of negotiations. Then I want the question of hatred. Now, because of our policy of non-racialism, there was no room for hatred. There was every room for forgiveness. Because having come to the stage of democratic elections, we had four million whites in the country. This was their home. They've got no other home. We couldn't drown four million whites into the sea. They are still going to live there. With a policy of hatred, revenge, it meant continuous conflict. So 
Mr. Mandela came out with a policy of reconciliation and forgiveness consistent with the policy of the African National Congress. So when he became president of the country, he of course symbolized this whole policy of reconciliation, forgiveness, nation building. Now that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has taken its course, there's beginning different cases where people who either didn't seek out amnesty or just never showed up or were denied amnesty are now going to court. Are you satisfied with how that process is happening? Well, you know, it's a bit too early in history to give a definitive assessment of, 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 of the Truth Commission. But we had to take that route. We could have charged the apartheid rulers in court for their atrocities because their foot soldiers who carried out the, all the tortures, the killings, they were acting on the instruction of the higher-ups. So the Truth Commission was set up. We did not want to have a Nuremberg trial like they did in Germany because that would have perpetuated the hatred and conflict. We thought this is the way out. Set up the Truth Commission under Archbishop Tutu's chairmanship and perpetrators and victims were invited to, to appear before the commission. We had about 20,000 people appearing before, very few perpetrators. But if those perpetrators with the most brutal crimes, if they satisfied their criteria of the Truth Commission, they were given amnesty. Those who were not, who did not appear, were not given amnesty. So there are some trials going on, but very few. In fact, the, the one trial was just about to start and this man died of cancer. So I don't think a trial has even started. Several, a couple years back, there was a reunion where the different prisoners from Robben Island came together. And one of the things that you found was really quite disturbing about it is a number of the prisoners were now destitute and you were going to do different things to try to improve the welfare of these prisoners. How has that worked out? What had happened is, yeah, five years after Mr. Mandela's release, there was a, a reunion on Robben Island, not confined to prisoners of Robben Island, ex-prisoners, but the, uh, the white colleagues who were not on Robben Island, the females who were not on Robben Island. Not all of them naturally were there because there were thousands of prisoners, but we had 1,200 prisoners there. And uh, it was painful to see quite a number of them uh, clothed in rags, with not even a, a belt. The government, our government has passed a, a law which allows for some support to former prisoners, not only to former prisoners, but also to our colleagues who were in exile, working full-time for the, for the organizations. So it is something, but, but not enough. It's never enough. Our, we haven't got unlimited resources because uh, this pension is not only meant for political prisoners, it's meant for our soldiers, it's meant for the thousands of our exiles, and we just don't have the resources to give them unlimited amount of money. The little the government gives them, of course, many of them are satisfied, but it's never enough. Are there some organizations that are working with these folks? Uh, an attempt was made, but it, it didn't succeed. Mm. Really. It's too bad. Yeah. I read a quote recently from uh, an Indian broadcaster who said that, talking about the Indian community in South Africa now, um, said that under apartheid, Indians were, quote, not white enough, and now they're, quote, not black enough. How do you think the Indian community in South Africa is well integrated into? Look, we are only 12 years old. Apartheid kept every group separate. All sorts of ideas developed in your separation about the other groups. Stereotypes developed. It's impossible to get rid of those stereotypes. But this is a, is a cliche that is being used. Under apartheid, we were not white enough. Just a, a year ago, a survey was done in six of the nine provinces of South Africa the total household income is highest among the Indians, more than the whites, the total household income. 
So you'll have people complaining. Our aim of the government is to give priority to the neediest of the needy, the poorest of the poor. These people who are complaining, they've got nothing they are short of. They've got motor car. I know the types who complain. I mean, I'm an Indian. I go and work among them. They've got motor cars, they've got television, they've got microwaves, they've got everything. They'll still complain. But it's a handful. And they get into the media. Now you had these group areas where Indians were staying. In the elections this month, they all voted for the ANC. So these types are a minority. And they have no reason to complain. They are selfish. I mean, they are not, uh, you know, in South Africa, even now, in the rural areas of South Africa, there are millions who haven't got running water. They haven't got electricity. They haven't got proper sanitation. Many are starving. Many children, well, all ch children are now at school at least, but we still have schools, not many, but schools under, under trees because we can't build classrooms fast enough. We still have squatter camps because under apartheid, Africans were not allowed to come to urban areas. Now that that law is not there, people are flooding the urban areas in search of employment, in search of uh, shelter. So we have to build houses. We built a million and a half houses. We've provided electricity to, I mean water, to 10 million homes. Electricity at a thousand houses a day. It is not enough. We still have far to go. So these people who complain are just ungrateful uh, and selfish. They are not thinking about the poor. They're just thinking for, uh, about themselves. In spite of the fact that they are, the, their standard of living, I mean, there are poor Indians too. We must, we must bear that in mind because the majority of the Indian population are workers. But un even under apartheid, because it applies differently to different people, the African people, the black people, were the most deprived. Their education, there was a law that applied only to the black people, an education law, which said there is no need for blacks to have the sciences or mathematics because they are laborers, and laborers don't need the sciences and mathematics. This did not apply to Indians so that the Indians could fit into jobs, uh, computers, secretarial jobs and so forth, which the others could not easily fit into. They were deprived of that education. You ended your memoirs on an optimistic note about South Africa, and that was, you ta were talking about the World Cup that was being, is going to be in South Africa in 2010. Why do you think that's going to be a, a real high point for South Africa? Well, you know, South Africa, uh, Sports is a religion. And when our team uh, plays, whether it's rugby, soccer, cricket, tennis, anything, and when they win, black and white South Africa celebrates unitedly. When the World Cup was announced, there was tremendous celebrations throughout the country. Now that we have won the Oscar for this uh, film, Again, white and black South Africans. I'm not for a moment saying that full integration has taken place. Uh, that will be premature to say. As I said, we're only 12 years old. But we are making headway. And, and it's, uh, we, are, we can never be satisfied, but uh, we are proud of what we've done so far. I have one last question, and it's kind of a trivial one. But um, I never expected that reading your book would make me hungry. <laughs> But when I was reading your book, it became very interesting to me that some of the things that seemed to really stick with you in your memory were, were about food and about the, maybe the food that someone brought you while you were in, waiting in prison or the food that you didn't have when you were in prison. So I have to ask, what was the first thing you ate when you got out of prison? Were you incited by the consul general? <laughs> <laughs> he made the same remark. <laughs> True, it really makes you hungry. No. Uh, I suppose one did talk a bit more about food because that was one of the deprivations. You know, after a little while in prison, after a few months, your stomach contracts. So 
we never really felt hungry, except during hunger strikes. But you feel for, for variety. So that's monotony, you know. And every now and I mean, I, I, I tease a friend of mine who brought me here yesterday from Lansing. They sent me photographs, and now one of the uh, nice things in prison was photographs of uh, friends, family, and they sent on one occasion a nice big photograph from London. They were sitting at a table. Now the photograph was big enough for us to identify the different dishes. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we could say, well, that's a samosa, that's this, that's this. And you feel hungry, because then you've got to go back to your porridge or <laughs> something. And one writes about that, you see, and told them that you fellows are cruel. <laughs> Sitting on a Sunday afternoon in London and having a nice big uh, lunch, and you send us this photograph of food. Now, food uh, does become important. But uh, perhaps I have overemphasized uh, the question of food. But you didn't answer my question. What was the first thing you sought out to eat? The what? What was the first thing that you sought after to eat when you got out of prison? No, you see, uh, when we were transferred from uh, Robben Island to Posmo, there were only five political prisoners. They had a special chef only cooking for us. The food we got for the last seven years of our imprisonment, Prison food was better than the food that the average black family has. But because we were only five, we could develop a, a relationship with warders which we couldn't do on, on, on So we used to smuggle food. Uh, uh, they used to smuggle for us. So we did, I mean, not daily, naturally, but from time to time we got smuggled food. So. There was nothing that, that we didn't have, <laughs> that we wanted, in this last few years, you know. Say once in a month, once in two months or so, but we did taste food that we wanted. <laughs>